You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 45 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are excited for our conversation about a few of the new highway-focused safety items featured on the NTSB 2021-2022 Most Wanted list. And we're excited to welcome Mike Fox and Steve Prouty, highway crash investigators in the NTSB Office of Highway Safety, and Brittany Rollinson, a statistician, and Nathan Doble, a transportation research analyst in the NTSB Office of Research and Engineering. Welcome, everybody. We're so happy to have you on today. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'm going to start by allowing our guests to introduce themselves like we always do on the podcast and share a little bit about your background and what brought you to the NTSB and how long you have been here. So we're going to start with Mike Fox. Uh, You have joined us on the podcast two times. You were with us for episode 29 when we discussed the Tempe, Arizona pedestrian crash. And we also had you on for episode 40 on motorcycle safety. So if you can give us just a very brief overview of your background and when you joined the board. Sure, Leah. Uh, Prior to coming to the board, I was an investigator for the federal DOT at the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, and I've been at the board now for a little over nine years. Great. Thanks. Steve Prouty, this is your first time on the podcast. Can you share with us your background and how and when you arrived at the NTSB? Sure, Leah, and thanks for having me. So I guess right after graduating from college the first time, uh, I had the opportunity to get into law enforcement and uh, really enjoyed that. Um, And I started working part-time for a local police department where I was exposed to to crash investigations. Um, And ever since I responded to my first fatal crash, um, I had the chance in in that investigation to work with a a crash reconstructionist uh, with the department that I worked for. Um, I became very interested in figuring out what happened. Um, I guess you could say I kind of got hooked on figuring out how and why crashes happen. Um, And not too long after that experience, I was hired by the Wisconsin State Patrol. And uh, about two years into my career there, I started taking uh, the series of crash investigation and reconstruction courses that were available. And after doing crash reconstruction nearly full time for several years, um, I decided I wanted to know more than what I could just get out of those crash-specific courses. Uh, so I went back to, to school to pursue uh, my second degree, uh, this time in engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and about three months before I started uh, what would turn out to be a, about a three-and-a-half-year educational leave of absence from the State Patrol uh, to get my engineering degree, uh, the Osseo bus crash occurred. Mm, um, sure. that's, that's a case that the NTSB responded to and investigated as well. I was the, the lead investigator on the, uh, the team for the State Patrol, for that case. So I had a chance to, to work with the GO team that launched that crash. I got exposed to the NTSB's Office of Highway Safety. Um, and then I, you know, shortly after that, I actually started my leave of absence, uh, went back, got my engineering degree. Um, and uh, about a, I think about a year and a half after finishing uh, my highway and structural engineering degrees, um, some of the NTSB investigators that I had worked with in the ICO crash let me know of an uh, upcoming job opening. Uh, I applied, went through the hiring process, and actually started here at the board 11 years ago today. Oh, wow. Well, happy How anniversary. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yay. 
<laughs> uh, Nathan, you were interviewed on the podcast way back in episode five, discussing uh, our safety study about speeding. Can you please reintroduce yourself uh, to our audience and give a little bit of a background on how you got to the board? Sure. So my educational background is in aerospace engineering, and I previously worked as a uh, contractor for both NASA and the FAA on projects related to air traffic control automation systems. I've been at the board for about nine years now, and I've been involved with safety studies across several different transportation modes on topics like uh, pipeline integrity management, speeding, and most recently, a study on injuries resulting from in-flight turbulence. Great. Thanks. And Brittany, this is also your first time on the podcast, so thanks for joining us. Can you share with us your background and how and when you arrived at the board? Sure, and thank you for having me. Um, I have a background in sociology, and um, prior to joining the board, I was a research analyst at New York City's Office of Labor Policy and Standards, and I joined the board um, in March of 2020, Mm -hmm. And um, while sociology and transportation don't seem to have anything to do with each other, sociology is just basically about how our society operates. And my focus was inequality and well-being. So I think that making sure that we're all safe is important. And I'm happy to be here at the board and on the podcast. Great. Thanks. Thanks. So in April of this year, we issued the 2021-2022 Most Wanted list, and the list features five highway safety items. Um, however, today we are going to be focusing on the safety items, implement a comprehensive strategy to eliminate speeding-related crashes, and protect vulnerable road users through a safe system approach. So I'm going to open it up um, to to all of you. Um, can you describe the safety items, these two safety items, and how your offices determined that they would rise to the top um, to be included on the list? I can start. I'll address protect vulnerable road users using a safe systems approach. Um, a recent statistic is that 12,065 pedestrians, bicyclists, and motorcyclists were killed in crashes in 2019, um, which is a 5% increase in pedestrian, bicyclist, and motorcyclist fatalities as a proportion of overall traffic fatalities since 2010. Uh, and nearly all other fatalities have decreased. And so um, obviously we're seeing an increase in vulnerable road users being severely injured or fatally injured. And so that is how it came to be one of our focuses. Sure. Mike? Yeah, I, want, yeah, I just wanted to chime in and perhaps the audience is not familiar with what we're talking about with vulnerable road users. <clears throat> we're, what we're talking about with that description are the people who are the most vulnerable on our roadways. So that would include by pedestrians, bicyclists and motorcycles. And because unlike in a, a, a motor vehicle, vulnerable road user, users lack any type of structure. They don't have a, a, a windshield. They don't have a, a, any type of protective uh, elements mm -hmm. to, their, to protect themselves. So when a crash occurs, they're most likely to suffer from uh, injury, which include, you know, injury or death. And we sure. have to make an effort, effort to make uh, vehicles more safely and efficiently. 
And so um, for the vulnerable road user safety item, um, I know that, you know, we have recommendations that touch on bicyclists, pedestrians, uh, motorcyclists, et cetera. Um, how are we uh, kind of addressing this big comprehensive, um, big comprehensive group into our safety improvements and, and what are we calling for for that safety item? Yeah, we, you know, we have to use a safe system approach to better protect vulnerable road users. Uh, a safe system approach is like a, a holistic uh, uh, aspect in which we're addressing road users, vehicles, speeds, roadways, and post-crash care. Uh, we, make, we have to make better uh, safety improvements from road treatments, vehicle design, collision avoidance systems to make strong traffic safety laws and robust education efforts to mitigate injury risks for all road users. So also on our most wanted list, we are working on implementing a comprehensive strategy to eliminate speeding related crashes. So Nathan, can you talk a little bit, um, since you were involved in the speeding study back in 2017, can you talk a little bit about how and why uh, we chose to put that on the most wanted list um, for this year? This is the second this is the second cycle that it's been on the most wanted list. So I think one of the reasons um, why we put it on the most wanted list is that uh, it's it's a pretty common crash factor um, in any given year, somewhere between 25 and, and 30 percent of all highway fatalities uh, involve a speeding driver. Mm -hmm. And as we saw um, in the early data that came out of 2020, that a lot of the um, crashes that were occurring on highways had much higher rates of speed. We saw an uptick in speeding related crashes uh, during the pandemic. And that was, you know, anecdotally could be because there were less drivers on the road, but at the same time, um, you know, what's the rush to get from one point to another when everything was shut down? So when we look at, at a safe system approach, how, how is that different from the traditional approach that, that we most people might be familiar with of, you know, the four E's or the five E's, depending on where, where you fall in that area? How, what is the difference? I think, uh, as Mike started to point out, um, we do have those five main principles uh, for the safe system approach, uh, looking at the road users themselves, um, the vehicles and how they're manufactured. Um, post-crash care and, and what happens following a crash, um, making sure that the roads are as safe as, as possible, and also uh, that people are, are driving at safe speeds. So we, we have all of those areas kind of, of intermesh and uh, make up that, that whole approach. Just looking at the way that NTSB approaches an investigation, and we'll talk specifically about a highway crash investigation, what does that approach look like from from our standpoint? We know that um, you know right now a lot of focus is is and blame is placed on the driver in in uh, in crash scenarios, but the NTSB doesn't always just focus. Well, we don't always we don't focus solely on the human involved in a crash. So, what what does a safe system approach to looking at um, a crash investigation? What what does that look like for for you all? Well, when we go out to a crash, we're going out with a multidisciplinary team. So we go out trying to figure out what happened from a human performance perspective, from a highway perspective, from motor carrier operations perspective, survival factors and vehicle factors, uh, and 
each specialist or, or, or uh, uh, expert is going to be analyzing all the dynamics that might be in their issue area. And then we come together and look at each component and holistically look at it. You know, what was the breakdown in the safety chain that created this crash? Sure. And most people are uh, most familiar, obviously, with our crash and accident investigations, crash investigations on highway, accident investigations and our other modes. But um, I don't know if our audience is really familiar with our safety studies and special investigation reports. So Nathan and Brittany, can you share a little bit about what um, what the difference is with those types of reports that come out of your office? Sure. So um a special investigation report um, usually focuses on a, on a safety issue um, and typically includes a discussion of, of multiple accidents that illustrate that issue as opposed to just being focused on a single accident. Um, and safety studies uh, typically address a transportation safety issue from a, a broader nationwide or perhaps um, industry-wide perspective. And so they tend to include more aggregate data analyses um, rather than focusing on individual events. And the safety recommendations coming out of those reports, they're more likely to be um, addressed to, say, federal agencies or industry associations rather than at uh, individual operators or manufacturers, for example. And um, go ahead. Sorry. I, I just want to say that um, I should note that the naming of our reports is changing. Mm. And so in the future, they'll just be classified as either investigation reports or safety research reports. Oh, OK. Cool. And how are, or excuse me, um, first of all, how many um, safety research reports, I guess, moving forward, how many of those does the agency release each year? And how is the topic um, of those reports determined? Uh, I would say um, lately, um, we've been producing about one of those a year. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, the topic is chosen um, in a variety of ways. Oftentimes, it's um, developed by staff. It can be uh, based on um, looking at, at um, common accident factors. Um, so like I mentioned the, uh, the speeding um, study that was undertaken because um, we found that uh, you know, a large percentage of the, the fatal accidents involved speeding, and it was a topic that the NTSB really hadn't addressed in a, in a comprehensive manner uh, recently. Mm -hmm. um, uh, similar sort of start for the um, the turbulence study that I just mentioned. Um, it turns out that uh, most air carrier injuries are due to turbulence. Um, other times, it could be a result of uh, a series of uh, actions that we've investigated that had a, a common safety issue that we just didn't feel there was <clears throat> enough time to, that we devoted enough time to a particular safety issue within the accident report that we wanted to address further. So that was the case with the um, the pipeline integrity management uh, study that I mentioned, where we had a couple of high profile um, pipeline accidents that we wanted to um, go deeper into some issues. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just going to add that sometimes our safety studies can kind of be a result of other safety studies. So I'm currently working on a micromobility project that um, is the result of information from the bike study and recommendations mm, made sure. there, so. And micro-mobility typically is like e-scooters, which also is a vulnerable road user. <laughs> right. 
In looking back at our 2017 pedestrian special investigation report, has NTSB continued to launch to crashes um, involving pedestrians? Yes, we have. The office uh, launched uh, an investigative team uh, back in 2018 to uh, Rochester, Indiana, uh, where they investigated a group of school-aged children that were crossing to get on the school bus um, where there was a, a crash there. Um, and we've also launched on other crashes uh, involving vulnerable road users, such as bicyclists and motorcycles uh, since that time. Um, and of course, we are continuing to work with the recommendation recipients uh, from the pedestrian investigations as well. Sure. Are there any factors or characteristics that you found among the pedestrian crashes in the special investigation report? Or was our study data in line with, with national data? There was actually a lot of commonalities between the crashes that we investigated and the national data. Uh, many of the crashes um, that we investigated occurred at, in the dark um, or at nighttime and were, were located outside of crosswalks. Um, we did have some investigations in rural locations as well, but the majority of the, the crashes that we investigated were in urban areas and all those things uh, line up pretty closely with the, the national data. Sure. Brittany or, or Nathan, from, from your work, um, what are some of the contributing reasons that someone would, would cross outside of a designated crosswalk area? Well, one reason, uh, I think, which is why the safe system approach is important, is that a lot of times uh, the blame is placed on the pedestrian uh, rather than the walking environment or that like infrastructure so sure. maybe there wasn't a crosswalk within a half mile, um, and that's why someone crossed the road where there wasn't a crosswalk. Um, and yeah, just I think infrastructure might be one of the biggest contributing factors to that. Sure. We know in, in our work, Leah and I working in advocacy and working on a lot of these issues that Fatality data is usually what um, drives investments in, in road safety. But Brittany, I know we've had conversations with you about data and um, other data sets that are available that could really help influence um, improving road safety for vulnerable road users, especially that isn't necessarily only driven by fatality data. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think one of the biggest, I guess, areas where data is lacking is in exposure data. Uh, it's hard, to, and which is basically activity data. So in other modes of transportation, you might measure uh, vehicle miles traveled, but there's no real measure for pedestrian <laughs> miles walked or however it would be phrased. So it's hard to calculate rates of fatalities and injuries, which is important in knowing how severe a problem might be. Um, and another issue is linking data across different sources. So um, fatality data and injury data might come from different places, uh, depending on who it was reported to and how it's aggregated. So um, uh, I'll just say linking data across different sources is also important. I was going to say, Mike, when it comes to the motorcycle population, we know that there is a lot of um, emphasis placed on protective gear for for the rider, and certainly that is driven by fatality data. But I know that you've been working a lot 
um, in the infrastructure design space around better protecting motorcyclists in the event of, uh, of a crash. Can you talk a little bit about some of the infrastructure investments that you see that could, could really benefit that population of road user? Yes, sure, Stephanie. Uh, I'm currently uh, working or on a committee that is dealing with infrastructure involving motorcycles. And uh, there's some safety studies that are ongoing right now down in Texas in which they're dealing with guardrails specifically to give them a better uh, height level so that when a motorcycle encounters this guardrail that they're not um, cut in half basically, which is the way the current structure of guardrails is right now. It's, it's extremely uh, 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 detrimental uh, for motorcyclists to collide with a guardrail. It's typically a fatal. So uh, right now they're working on uh, a variety of infrastructure aside from guardrails, also with roadway signage and different things to prevent countermeasures from uh, motorcyclists from uh, dying on our roadways. Sure. We have 32 safety recommendations associated with the vulnerable road user safety item and 21 safety recommendations associated with the speeding safety item. Are there any overlaps with these safety recommendations between the two items? And or are there any common safety recommendations, excuse me, are there any common uh, safety countermeasures that we are recommending for both of the safety items? Yeah, I think uh, you know, slowing vehicles down in general from the, the speeding uh, side of it um, obviously makes crashes more survivable uh, for you know the vulnerable road users when they're struck. Um, it will cause less severe injuries, um, and it, because just because of the uh, the reduction in the crash forces involved. And just uh, for our listeners who may not be aware, we currently have a uh, roundtable series going on with Chair Hammondy. She is taking a, a deep dive on the safe system approach and all of the all of the roundtables that we have completed thus far are all available on our YouTube channel. And we will have another one which will be focusing on safe road users. Um, and so if anyone is curious about some of the discussion going on around this safety item, I encourage you all to tune in to the YouTube uh, videos that we have posted. So on these safety recommendations that we have issued on both of the safety items, um, can you talk to us a little bit about who should be taking action to improve safety in these areas? Sure, I, mean, I guess everyone really. Um, <laughs> sure, to, true. to go along with the safe system approach, um, you know, it needs to be a collaborative effort. Um, I guess for the, the speed, safe speed portion of it, um, roadway design and engineering at all levels, so, you know, be it the, the federal, state, and local jurisdictions all working together. Um, through engineering, we can work on changing street design to make uh, make it more difficult and in some cases less appealing to actually speed mm. um, through traffic calming measures, uh, such as installing traffic circles, reducing lane widths, reducing the number of lanes in some cases, uh, and uh, you know, in installing speed humps and speed tables, all, all things that are designed to slow people down, especially in uh, urban areas, residential areas, that type of thing. They're, they're very effective there. Um, also working with vehicle manufacturers, uh, you know, they play a part whether it's uh, through speed limiting technology or at least warning the driver when they've gone above the speed limit. Uh, enforcement of the speeds by law enforcement uh, helps 
play a major role in reducing the speeds. Because um, if drivers know that there's a chance they might get stopped and, and ticketed, they're more likely to obey the speed limit. And then drivers themselves need to take responsibility for reducing their own speeds. So again, it's it's kind of everyone. Sure. Nathan, when you all conducted the speed study, um, were you surprised that there was not a national effort um, to raise awareness for the problem of speeding? And what did you find from stakeholders for, I guess, kind of a lack of making that a national priority like we've done for things like impaired driving, um, distracted driving, and even pedestrian safety? Um, yeah, I, w- I was surprised to find out that, um, you know, given the prevalence of, of speeding as a, um, as a factor, especially in fatal accidents, um, that there wasn't a, um, a national program um, to address the issue. Uh, and so one of the things we recommended was that um, the federal regulators um, set up some sort of program like that, you know, similar to, um, for example, we've seen around uh, seatbelt usage with click it or ticket. Mm-hmm. Sure. The NTSB's most wanted list covers a two year time frame. From your perspectives and your work, what progress do you hope to see in the next two years that, that you believe would really improve safety for vulnerable road users and especially um, when it comes to reducing speeds? I think realistically, it's going to take much longer than you know just two years to, to reduce speeding uh, everywhere. But if we can start to change the mindset about speeding and, and start making design changes to our roadways when they're due to be reconstructed, uh, well, we definitely be headed in the right direction. Um, obviously, the NTSB is strongly advocating the use of the safe systems approach due to the steady increase in fatalities on the roadways that we've been seeing um, and implementing that safe system uh, approach and those principles will go a long way towards reversing the current trend. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add, uh, I, I agree with Steve. Uh, <clears throat> we need government leaders to take action on our recommendations, specifically NHTSA and Federal Highway. We're hoping that they will embrace our recommendations. But we also need manufacturers, specifically in motorcycle manufacturers, to take the lead in in introducing a very simple technology that is very common, and that's ABS. Anti-lock braking systems uh, in our in our investigation uh, has determined it will significantly reduce uh, or mitigate a crash. And ironically, ABS has been standard on automobiles since the year 2000. Since 2000, it's 21 years ago. But for motorcycles, it's not standard. It's not standard equipment. It is in Europe, but it's not in the U.S., so we're hopeful that motorcycle manufacturers will take the lead and make that standard, as well as stability control on all motorcycles that are on the streets. And I think there's also a role for states to play in uh, reducing speeding. Um, we have excellent data that automated speed enforcement, for example, is a highly effective at uh, reducing speeding and reducing um, speeding related injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, however, many states um, don't have laws in place that allow those communities that that want to set up an, an automated speed enforcement program, uh, they don't have the laws that would allow them to do that. Mm-hmm. So we, we've made recommendations for states to, to change their laws around automated speed enforcement. Sure. And I don't think we should miss an opportunity to talk about the 85th percentile, which mm-hmm. is a huge problem from our perspective as it relates to, to the speeding problem. Nathan or Brittany, could you talk a little bit about Um, the 85th percentile and why we recommend that that not be what states are using uh, to set speed limits. Sure. So um, 
the 85th percentile um, rule or guideline basically states that the speed limit should be set at um, the speed at which um, 85% of the, the vehicles on our roadway um, are traveling at or below. The, the, the problem, of course, is that um, since speeding is pretty prevalent, that it can kind of result in this, this undesirable cycle where people travel faster than the speed limit. So then when you measure the 85th percentile speed, um, it's higher than the current speed limit. And it indicates that the speed limit should be um, should be increased, increased, increased. Uh, and so you really get a conflict when, um, you know, especially in, say, urban areas where you have a lot of uh, vulnerable road users, um, communities want to reduce speed limits to uh, account for the needs of all the road users. But um, oftentimes the, the state guidance for setting speed limits doesn't allow them to do that. Um, and to add, I think that, uh, like as was mentioned, speeding in urban areas is a huge problem. And um, people that live in those communities have been speaking out about it. A lot of people have asked, what does what does a safe system designed road look like? So if we're looking at designing an urban roadway or urban intersection um, that would take in consideration that you had people biking and walking and motorcycling and driving, what would that look like? Well, I think it, I think it, it, it's it's got to be this holistic, all hands on deck approach where you're having infrastructure, meaning the roadway design, uh, uh, traffic circles. You have bike lanes, you have walking lanes, you have V to V, V to I technologies that are all communicating. All those things have to come click together in order for it to be a safe system. And uh, we're a long way from that, but that's the way it's it's going to have to take. Everybody, a collaborative effort from government, industry leaders, manufacturers, everybody to participate in this and make it a, a, a utopia, so to speak, like heaven, like I'm describing. Sure. And I think that uh, one thing to keep in mind, similar to, you know, what we've been talking about with pedestrian safety in particular, but the safe system approach, it's not going to be a one size fits all. Uh, like Mike said, it needs to involve a dialogue from uh, everyone. Um that uses the roadway system to share their input, share their experiences, and then come up with a solution that accommodates everyone, which sounds challenging, but really there are there are elements of the safe, safe system approach already being implemented in a lot of communities. Um, it just needs to be expanded upon and, you know, like I said, bring everyone to the table that's going to be using the roadway. So I just want to ask everyone, um, what advice would you have for drivers um, based on some of the investigations and or the studies that you've worked on um, that would make them be uh, better roadway users and alert to pedestrians and bicyclists and motorcyclists? Some of the, the advice that I would give is um, to slow down and give yourself more time to react to what is ahead of you. Uh, you know, the slower you're going, the more chance you're going to have to, to see things and the more time you're going to have to decide what you need to do to, to avoid an impact. Um, using your high beam headlights at night uh, when it's safe to do so uh, also increases how far you can see. Mm. And then expect there to be pedestrians and bicycles along the roadway. Sure. Uh, a lot of times we kind of get into that mindset that, you know, we're just cruising along in the road and there's no one on the road except for other cars. but you, know, you have to 
um, teach yourself to expect that there could be pedestrians and bicycles uh, along any roadway. Mm-hmm. I, I want to add to the conversation, and, and <clears throat> aside from all this a dialogue about infrastructure and some of these other components that will be very good, a basic thing that is common throughout all these crashes that we investigate is alcohol and impairment. That is a significant sure. uh, representation of the crashes that we investigate. Mm-hmm. Statistically, 25% of all motorcycle crashes is due to impairment. So if, 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 if I could give advice, it would be don't drink and drive. Whether mm-hmm. you're operating a motorcycle or walking or anything, you know, stay off the roadways. Slow down, follow the speed limit. Um, like Steve said, that'll give you um, a greater reaction time um, if um, you know an obstacle appears in the roadway, and um, and if you do end up hitting something, um, it won't be as uh, severe uh, an injury. Um, and speed doesn't really save you that much time. There's there's lots of studies out there showing that that people continually overestimate just how much time savings there is to be gained by speeding. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say, that speeding doesn't actually help you get anywhere that much faster. I don't know the exact amount of time you would have to travel by, like, over a period of time, how much time it saved you to speed, but I don't think it's significant. But I think that there's a calculation for that, if anyone knows it off the top of their head. (laughs) There is, and I actually think we have it, we we discussed it, I know, in the speeding report, um, that the there really is, like you said, um, you know, speeding to get to work sooner really is uh, what puts your, yourself and so many other people that you're sharing the road with at unnecessary risk. Yeah. And trying to get it, trying to get to your destination a little bit faster is really not the risk of losing your life or uh, or taking someone, cause, taking someone else's life. Yeah. Has there been anything uh, particularly surprising about the crashes you've investigated involving vulnerable road users? Uh, I'll start off and say that uh, I've investigated a lot of crashes in my career, but the motorcycle crashes that I've investigated have been the most severe, Mm. uh, shocking. Shocking would be the word, um, because when a motorcyclist goes off the road, they normally are thrown into the tree line or underneath another vehicle. And compared to a, 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 a crash that involves a, a, a commercial motor vehicle or a car, the motorcyclist is typically dismembered mm. um, and it's a gruesome scene. So I don't mean to <laughs> be a downer, but that's the most shocking thing is, is that the difference between a motorcycle crash and a vehicle crash is, is, is tremendous. I can, I can kind of second that, uh, you know, I've investigated a, a couple cases now where we've had uh, vehicles actually strike, uh, strike groups of bicyclists that were traveling along the roadway um, and, uh, you know, same type of thing as Mike was just talking about. Yeah, I know, Leah, for, for me and looking at the investigations that our highway team has done and even the safety reports that we've been discussing um, you know, I think all of them, most of the, the safety studies that we've done, they say, you know, we're highlighting underused countermeasures mm-hmm. or we're reiterating recommendations that we've issued before. So I think something that always stands out to me is that 
in most cases, we're not asking for anything new. We're repeating things that we've been asking for, you know, for a couple years or in some cases, decades. Um, it's just this, the fact that when it comes to, to highway safety and highway crashes, that those investments just aren't being made um, in the things that we know will work. Well, we're getting towards the end of our podcast. And so I just want to offer our guests any final thoughts that they have on um, vulnerable road users and and or speeding or both together um, before we wrap up. One thing I think that we didn't get to address was that there's um, an increasing focus on equity and transportation. And especially among pedestrians, there's a significant difference in race and gender. And so um, there are studies coming out that reflect this and uh, black, Hispanic and multiracial men are more likely to be admitted to the hospital or die from uh, being involved in a pedestrian crash with the vehicle. So Mm -hmm. just uh, saying that because I think it's important to note. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're in a new era of highway safety and implementing the safe systems approach will go a long way towards you know, eliminating traffic crashes on our roadways. Uh, but ultimately, it's going to take everyone, including you know, the engineers and vehicle manufacturers, law enforcement, road users themselves, uh, each doing their part to actually get us there. Absolutely. I, I just wanted to reiterate uh, the statistics that Brittany was uh, discussing earlier. 6,000, over 6,000 pedestrians, over 5,000 motorcyclists, and 800 bicyclists every year getting killed out on our highways. I think people need to, to, to sit back and realize that that is an unacceptable number. Mm-hmm. And we all have to take a part in being part of the safe system. And that includes us. The average person in a, in a vehicle, you have to be mindful and look around your surroundings. Don't be so absorbed into your cell phone and other distracting items that's going to take your attention away from the roadway. I, I, I mean, several crashes that I have worked involving motorcyclists, the first thing that the, the uh, driver says is, I didn't see him mm-hmm. or her. Mm-hmm. I didn't see them. So they have to scan. They have to be attentive. So... That would be my last uh, concluding remark is ask our audience to please be more attentive on your roadways. Thanks, Mike. Stephanie, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I do. (laughs) And looking at these two most wanted list issues and the, the purpose of our most wanted list, which is to really call attention to the needed safety improvements, the recommendations that we've made that we know will make a difference and looking at the issues of protect vulnerable road users through a safe system approach and implement a comprehensive strategy to eliminate speeding related crashes. We have over 50 recommendations. So 50 actions that could be taken, need to be taken, open recommendations that we've made from crash investigations and these studies that we've mentioned that would get us closer to our goal of zero traffic crash related fatalities and serious injuries. So I really just encourage anyone that's listening like Mike and Steve, and we've said throughout, you know, whether you're just a road user or you're in a place uh, of where you can take regulatory action or design a vehicle, um, do your part, check out what the NTSB is calling for um, to address these two really important safety items. 
I couldn't have said it any better, Stephanie. I was going to make a mention of that, that even though we make recommendations to state entities, government entities, uh, businesses, everyone is able to drive safely and slow down and uh, be alert while they are walking along the roadway, wear their bicycle helmet when they're out for a ride, wear protective gear if they're a motorcyclist. So we hope that uh, even if you are not a safety recommendation recipient, that you take responsibility for being safe on our roadways um, every time, every trip. I want to thank our guests one more time for joining us today. Um, it's been a great conversation. Thank you, Stephanie, for being my fantastic co-host. And thank you, James Anderson, for being our wonderful producer and making us all sound fantastic. And we will talk to you next episode. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.